0: Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. And um, here's the deal. As soon as you say the word revival, um, I realize that that word means a whole bunch of different things for different people. And so for some of you, maybe our more foodie type, revival immediately makes you think of this. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, not scripture, that's for sure not. You're not thinking of scripture when you hear revival. Go on down to the the sermon slides, there's a picture. Go ahead. (laughs) Come on, give us the chicken, give us the chicken. Give us the chicken. You think of revival. Hey, somebody's hungry for lunch. I don't know if you haven't ever been to Revival, but it's so good that my friend from the south wants to come back and have fried chicken. Right? I don't know what that is, but like he loved it so much, um, and it is very, very good. So for the foodies among us or for those of you who need a restaurant recommendation, Revival is your ticket. Maybe perhaps you think of something more like this. Billy Graham, Los Angeles revival. You think of revival in the last century or so. Tents, meetings, lots of people, a a big evangelist hollering from the stage. That's a funny little character of Billy Graham over there, too. I kind of like that. Um, Or perhaps your background tradition makes you think of a Holy Week revival with services upon services upon services and more speakers so that we might encounter the living God together and be changed. Revival is an interesting word, isn't it? Um, It means different things to different people in this room. And so what I thought um, this morning is we'd, from the book of Jonah, spend a little bit of time trying to define revival. Um, but before we do that, I, kinda, I have three things I want to do this morning, um, hopefully quick so we can eat lunch. But um, I want to define revival. I want to describe revival. And then I also want to challenge us to start desiring revival, okay? Before we get into that, um, let me catch you up if you're newer to the story of Jonah um, or if you're newer to our church. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been introduced to this guy who's a prophet, um, he served in God's temple as a priest, was a religious man, and then God shows up to him and says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah, if you look at the map, goes 2,500 miles the other way to Tarshish, gets a, shop at, gets a ship at Joppa, goes along to the, on the Mediterranean Sea, away from where God has asked him to go fleeing the presence of the Lord. But here's the deal, that doesn't work so well. Running from God is kind of hard because God actually always finds you wherever you go, right? And so God shows up to Jonah, telling him to go to Nineveh, and then God shows up to Jonah in the belly of a great musky Well, it wasn't a muskie, it was like a whale. It was this massive fish that had swallowed Jonah after he had gone on the ship with these sailors, and then the storm that God hurled upon them became so tumultuous that the ship threatened to break apart, and then instead the the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea. And Jonah sinks down, down, down. Rather than going up to Nineveh, he goes down and gets eaten by the whale. And in the belly of the whale, he cries out to God, finally at this point of turning, and God hears him. God hears him. Jonah's not-so-subtle self-centeredness is on display in full effect in chapter 2, which we studied last week, where his prayer is so about him and has nothing to do with his call. He doesn't even acknowledge the fact that he has ran away from the Lord. Instead, he's concerned with his own skin. So, given the story of Jonah, how should we go about defining revival? How should we go about defining revival? Well, whenever you're studying the Bible, you have to consider not just, you know, the passage or the isolated incidents of something, but you want to look to what comes before it and to what comes after it. You want to look at the other pieces of the Scripture that talk about that very theme, because one passage in isolation will not mean something contrary to the the whole of them collective. There is a unified voice that speaks here from the Scriptures. And if you look at chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah and then chapter 4 of Jonah, revival starts to mean something pretty clear. Right, I mean, chapter one, Jonah runs to escape the presence of the Lord, and God visits him, telling him to go to Nineveh. And then God visits him in the belly of the whale at the response of Jonah crying out to him. If you think about that word revive, revival, it is the pairing of, or the, the core word from the Latin language is, of course, vive, right? It's, it's re again, or to go back, and then life And the theme of chapter 2 is all life and death. Jonah has drifted down to the depths of the sea. He's as good as gone. And then all of a sudden, God revives him. But it's not quite what he deserves. I mean... For a guy who's run from God, for a guy who's not acknowledged what he's done, he certainly doesn't deserve to be swallowed by the whale, nor does he deserve, well, maybe he does, to be vomited upon the shore. But if you look at the the passage, Jonah, in this pious declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord, gets a response of the fish where he goes, because Jonah has only been concerned about himself and his declaration of salvation is still good for him, but not for others. And so the fish, in a fitting way, spits him up onto the shore. And here we are in chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, he doesn't deserve a second time. Like, this sorry saint has nothing that God should say, hey, yeah, I'm gonna give you another spot, a chance here. Like, I think you should go out on the shore and then pick up your stuff and then move your way onto Nineveh. There's no reason for God to keep using him. Yet a second time, the Lord comes to him, giving him, again, what he doesn't deserve. And the Lord comes to him and says, arise, arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is the same phrase as the beginning of the book. Arise, get up, go to Nineveh, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into it. Funny phrase there. Began is really sort of like he, start, he, he let go. He, he let himself go. It's, it's this really interesting kind of textual thing where if, if Jonah finally is giving himself over to God's command and will here, as he lets himself go and he enters the city, he starts crying out to them and he calls out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. Sounds like a happy one, right? (laughs) 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now this is all that we have that Jonah said. Maybe he said more than that, but this is all we have of the record. If you look at it in English, it's seven words. If you look at it in Hebrew, it's five words. It's short I don't, it doesn't look like he's trying very hard. <laughs> he's just like, time's coming. Judgment's on the way soon. And in case you didn't know, there's a God who has all power to undo you. That's it. Judgment's coming. You're on the hook. 40 days, you'll be overthrown. How are they going to respond? How would you respond? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Now listen, judgment is coming upon the evil ways of Nineveh. And by all biblical and historical accounts, by even archeological accounts, Nineveh was an incredibly brutal and wicked city. They had oppressed all of the nations surrounding them. They had done vile things to them when they conquered them. There is a reason that Jonah very much hates, yes, hates that strong word, Nineveh, does not like them one bit. And as he's going, he's hopeful that God is going to annihilate this people in 40 days. That is the only thing that Jonah is wishing for here. And what he says is, God has power despite all of your intellectual prowess, Nineveh, despite all of your economic achievements, despite all of your military might, God, the God of heaven, will undo you in 40 days. Imagine with me what Jonah is thinking when they believe him. (laughs) Like, he's probably shocked it's like wait 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 wait, you you're bad people. Like how, how do you how are you doing? No, don't don't trust God. Like, how, this you're not capable of this. Or maybe he's just completely in wonder. Like he's going out telling people destruction's coming, and they're all going, "What do we need to do? What 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 do we need to do? Let's 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 seek the Lord." And here's their response. Look at. The people of Nineveh believe God, and they call a fast. No more food. We're done. They change their clothes, which is the signal for mourning. And they put on sackcloth, and they dwell in ashes, a sign of humility. And they called for a fast from the greatest of them to the least. It's crazy. This shouldn't happen. You know, the whole story sort of builds up as you read the next few verses. Let me see if I can highlight it for you. And it all hinges upon this word to call out. You see, God says to Jonah that he should go call out to the people of Nineveh. And then he goes and he calls out his wonderful sermon. And then the people respond. And in mass, they start calling out to God. And then the message reaches all the way up to the king of Nineveh. Let me read it to you. Look at verse six. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. And let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered by sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God, calling out. All the way up to the end, let everyone turn from his evil ways, from the violence of his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. So that we may not perish. It builds up to the final verse in the story. And listen, I don't want you to get confused by some of the religious sort of caricatures of what revival can be. Because here in Jonah, you have a prime example of what the genuine, the real, the bona fide revival looks like. These people are just like Jonah. They may not have gone down to the depths, but they in their evil ways have come up before God and they are as good as dead in light of a God who would overthrow them. Like Jonah at the bottom of the sea, these people of Nineveh have no hope whatsoever. And so they cry out, just like Jonah in the mighty musky, they are crying out, towards God, a God who they hardly even know other than what Jonah has told them. And they're staring down the barrel of God's fierce anger against their crazy oppression and wickedness. They deserve judgment. But what do they get? Instead of death, their cry and plea is met with the gift of life. At the flow of Jonah and the focus of this chapter goes all the way straight to the heart of revival. Revival happens when God visits people with a surprising mercy. Mercy. That's what revival is. Revival happens when God visits people with surprising mercy. When their cries come up before God and then he, in verse 10, sees what they did, how they turned from their evil way and God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Mercy. Now, there's a ton that's been written on revival throughout history and one of the more contemporary works is by a guy named Ian Murray called Revival and Revivalism it's a meaty text but there's probably somebody in this room that might want to read it so they'll probably be like writing it down for the rest of us i want to read the summary of the book given by Dr Gumpton here's what he says revival in the church should not be confused with protracted meetings of emotionally charged preaching and manipulative pleas for public repentance and rededication. It's not some spectacle to be had. Instead, revival is God's answer to the fervent prayers of men and women who ache over the eclipse of God from the consciousness of his people, the overpowering presence of sin and unrighteousness, and the lethargy of Christ's church in their place and time. In answer to this longing and prayer, God, in his time and often in the most surprising ways, brings about a rebirth of teaching and preaching scripture, and the Holy Spirit moves mightily in the receptive hearts of listeners who repent sorrowfully and confess their sins, who seek God's forgiveness, who experience God's mercy, and powerfully rededicate their lives to him in ways that literally transform their surroundings, in genuine revivals, whole communities, cities, nations may experience the mighty presence of God among them. Revival happens when God visits a people with surprising mercy, a mercy that we don't deserve. Okay, we've read through the chapter but I gotta go back with you and describe this a little bit more. There's our definition, surprising mercy, but let me describe it for you a little bit more, okay? Here's here's the first thing I see in verse four and five. Verse four and five. Read this with me. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here's the first thing you need to know about revival. Revival shows off God's power to bring diversity into unity. Revival shows off God's power to bring diversity into unity. Somebody say diversity. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we value here as a church. And revival is God's power to make that possible in a significant way. Here's why. Revival's not niche, right? Revival is not like, target marketing that lands directly on the interests of a particular group of consumers, fitting them exactly to what they need. No, revival sweeps over men and women, young and old, does not matter what color, does not matter what class, does not matter what culture. When revival happens, the common denominator of our humanity comes forward in a way that doesn't erase our differences, but actually enables diversity to function well within a community because somehow we recover that we are made in the image of God and that we have fallen far from God. It is that moment when across differences, we start to go, wait, 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 you too struggle just as I do? And God is our only hope? His mercy is sweet to you as it is to me? Maybe for different reasons, maybe because of different sins, maybe because of different circumstances. But revival shows off God's power to bring diversity into unity and then to catalyze it on a mission that changes whole communities, entire nations even. I mean, come on, church. Like, this is what we long for. This is why we exist as a church, right? Like, what if increasingly Emmanuel Fellowship was the kind of diverse community that people came around, and when they got here, they were like, how is this possible? Like, God must be here. Otherwise, like, none of these people are going to be hanging out together. Like, but God has brought together a kind of diverse group that only can be explained by the blood of Jesus. Like, what if that was how people knew us, family? That God was at work and he's the explanation. I mean, I, I feel like we've got something unique here already. And I know many of you do too. And I feel like it's time to go, church. Like God is doing something in us and he will begin to shine through us as we continue to live unified on a mission together amidst our great diversity. We will make the mercy of God shine. That's what revival does. Revival shows off God's power to bring diversity into unity. The second thing I see here is revival spreads. Revival spreads by fervent Prayer, prayer, and fasting. Somebody say prayer, because I can't. Prayer. Okay, I know you thought that like we were just gonna do 21 days and you could sort of like leave that behind. No, all right. We're we're trying to pray, church. Right? We are going to become a church that seeks the Lord together. If you want to check the box off of prayer, you could go work, you could go worship somewhere else. Right? We wanna be the people who press in, who seek the Lord together. And we are going to do it again for another 21 days this year. So you, you, you didn't miss out, okay? You're, there's going to be another chance. But even this week, you can give yourself to seeking the Lord in prayer. Look at this. This is verse 7 and 8. Only start in 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, he says, everyone, man or beast, call out mightily to God. The king has this intensity. Like, the people are already praying, and he, like, ratchets it up a notch. He's like, y'all stopped eating. No, no more water either. Right? And not just the people, the animals. They can't eat either. Right? The, like, the animals don't feed them. Anybody have a dog? What happens when you don't feed your dog? They get grumpy. Like, they start barking. Like, they just start going crazy. Any of you have kids? What happens when you don't feed your kids? Man, they get hangry. I got, I got three of them. They're young. They get hangry. Like, they start to yell. They start to make noise. They're like, where is food? Give me something. Imagine the scene. If you've got a whole bunch of cattle and animals not eating for days— the sound would be hilarious. Like there's literally the cries of the animals are rising up before God for food and for God to move. The king says, pray with fervor and with fasting because fasting is one of those means of seeking God's mercy. And throughout history, this kind of devotion And pursuit of the Lord has always been the fertile ground from which revival springs and spreads. What is God's word to you right now? Huh, church? Like, what is God's word to you this morning? What has he been saying to you this week, this month? And are you responding the way the people of Nineveh did? Do you respond with this heartfelt fervor and devotion, or are you letting it slip and perhaps beginning to run with Jonah? All right, let's keep going. Revival shines through humility and holiness. Somebody say, be humble. Got any Kendrick Lamar fans in here? I mean, come on, be humble. That is what this passage is telling us. Revival shines through humility and holiness. Revival doesn't shine as a spiritual spectacle. It does not shine as a moment where a lot of crazy things happen. This ain't about, like, holding snakes or something and not getting bit. Like, I don't know if that's your tradition. But, like, this is about spiritual renewal of people that makes waves far beyond the church. It makes waves far beyond the church. I mean, think about the king. The word comes to him. He takes off his royal robe. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and then he challenges all of the people to turn from their evil ways. The king even knows they're an evil people. Turn from your evil ways and cry out to seek the Lord, right? And maybe you this morning are not given to bloodshed like the Ninevites were, but maybe you're greedy for control, right? Maybe you're gossiping at work, Maybe you're sort of gluttonous on whatever brings you a bit of comfort. Maybe perhaps you have evil ways too. Maybe perhaps the spirit of God has pressed them upon you this morning as we prayed. I don't know what it looks like for you to turn this morning and to pursue humility and holiness before God, but surely revival or renewal within our church will not shine until we do. What if our lives, We're continually transformed by a surprising mercy, by the mercy of God. Like what if a grace that we didn't deserve washed over us wave after wave, like the the sea, like Amber was saying, the ocean worth of waves washing over upon us, bringing newness, bringing life, bringing change. Like, I believe that God wants to visit us. I believe that if we pursue him, he will drop a gospel richness upon us that changes us for many people to see and be affected. I believe that the potential here for spiritual renewal could affect the way our entire community approaches the arts. I believe the potential that we have in this room could change much of the way the housing situation in our city is. Perhaps there would be a stoppage or at least not a shortage of affordable housing if God's people mobilized. I believe perhaps there's enough transformation that could happen here and beyond us that our education system could experience improvement and growth. Like what if our society was blessed because spiritual renewal happened among us. That's what happened in Nineveh. Revival shines through humility and holiness, not a spectacle, but spiritually renewed people making changes in the world around them. Our last, but not least, revival starts with repentance and faith. When we say repent, Repent. Verse eight, let everyone turn from his evil ways. You see that word repeated three or four times in the end of the chapter, from the violence of his hands. You know, Jonah's sermon, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's really an interesting line because if you were to have put your finger on that word over throne, you would have seen that by now, and as you read into chapter 4, the only person who knows what it means is Jonah. Because when the Ninevites hear the word, all they think is disaster. They don't know God in the way that Jonah knows God. In fact, you can see that in the passage if you read in, as we will, next week into chapter 4, Jonah knows God as the Lord, as Yahweh. As the covenant-keeping God, the God who has showed up to his fathers, who's been faithful to the people of Israel. And all the Ninevites know God as is Elohim God, the great one. They have no clue of his faithfulness. They have no clue of his mercy. And so it's very real for them that in verse nine, they would say, Who knows? who knows? We don't even know if this will work. All of our fasting, all of our prayer, who knows? The great God has no reason we are evil to relent. But Jonah knows that it is in the very character of God to be merciful It is in the very character of God to be faithful and full of steadfast love, to be slow to anger, and to be quick to respond to his people who cry out to him. And so though Nineveh doesn't know, Jonah knows. Jonah knows. And that's why there is this brilliant subtle play in the word overthrow, because it can also mean to turn around. And so the Ninevites don't know. They think the only option is destruction. But Jonah knows there is a real vital option for them to turn, to repent. And as they do, miraculously, because Jonah thinks they will never do it, all of a sudden they cry out to God with a change of heart, with longings for renewal, with a change of their ways, and God visits them in mercy in mercy, and they believe him. They believe him. Scripture is clear, and this passage is really clear, that before us, there are two options. We will either be overthrown in the hardness of our heart, or we will be overcome by the living God and turn to him in repentance. We will either be overthrown or we will be overcome by the power and the mercy of the living God. What do you need to turn from? Where do you need to trust him this morning? How has the Lord been at work in you, calling you to repentance and calling you to faith? They believe the word, Jonah says, they believe the work of this great God he speaks of. Do we? Do we? Okay, listen, my hope in studying this passage is that we would desire revival. We long for it to come. We long for it to come in ourselves and in our church. And here's the deal, both the individual and the corporate aspects of renewal function the same way. And what we've laid out, what we've described is the pathway towards them. But I want to encourage us to pursue this kind of renewal. We're not going to manufacture something. We're not going to have smoke and lights and spiritual sensation, but we're going to seek the Lord together. We're going to call out to him as the people of Nineveh did. And listen, here's the good news for you and me. We know but the Ninevites did not know. We know because of Jonah, and of course we know because of Jesus, that God does love to show mercy. That his mercy is rich and his mercy is great. We have greater confidence that if we call out to him, he will respond to us. We have greater hope that his spirit is at work already renewing us. If we cry out as God's people, we even have Jesus as our forerunner. If you think about this, I think one of the most breathtaking pictures this passage alludes to is not just the wicked king of Nineveh coming off of his throne, but the righteous king Jesus coming off of his throne. Isn't this the story of the gospel? The righteous king Jesus comes off of his throne in all holiness and in all humility, He comes off of his throne so that we might know his invitation to repent and believe. He comes off of his throne. He arose and came for us, not just to put on ashes and sackcloth, but to put on dust in the grave. Not just to say that death is what comes by sin, but to say that repentance brings about life. He gets up from the grave. He ascends on high. King Jesus not only came down, but he went back. And on the throne he sits interceding for you and me so that we might learn to intercede for others and for our city to cry out. Listen, friends. In Jesus, we have all we need to continually seek renewal from God. And may we do so. One of my mentors from afar, Dr. Ray Ortland, writes in his book, When God Comes to Church. That's the title. He says, we cannot trigger a divine visitation on our churches, but it is our responsibility to prayerfully offer our Lord a church steeped in the gospel and tenderly responsive to his presence. His Spirit's blessing should not have to work against the logic and the ethos we create. Let's be responsive to the Lord's presence, church. Let's be responsive to what God wants to do among us. And let's cry out for Him to bring renewal here and far beyond us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for the message of revival, and thanks for the vision that we might as a church seek this kind of renewal continually. May we hunger for it Sunday after Sunday. May we pray for it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And may we hope for it because of your great goodness and mercy, Jesus. Come and do a surprising work of mercy among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I want to invite the worship team to come forward and they can get started taking communion. And we're going to respond to God